Please turn to me in your Bible. It's the first Thessalonians chapter four, verses fifteen through eighteen. First Thessalonians four, fifteen through eighteen. First Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. This early epistle is written to encourage these believers in their faith and to also help them understand more about the amazing and eternal things of God. Up to this point, Paul commended these believers in numerous ways. He defended himself and his ministry. He expressed his deep love and concern for these Christians in Thessalonica. He encouraged them. He prayed for them. And Paul practically showed them how they are to live out their faith and how they are to grow in their sanctification for the glory of God. Paul's now answering some questions that the Thessalonian Christians had for him. And the last question was this, what about those who have fallen asleep? What about those who have died in Christ? It's a very good question. If you remember, the Thessalonian Christians had been expecting the return of Christ before any of them died. They had a moment-by-moment expectation that Christ was going to return very, very soon, within days or at most, within weeks. And they never entertained the thought that death would happen to them. No way. No way. Jesus would come back before that time. But guess what? Since Paul's departure, one or more of the Thessalonian Christians have indeed died. So what about them? They asked. Paul's response, hey, don't worry about them. It's all good for them. No, no worries. For God will bring with him, he said, those who sleep in Jesus. That's good news. So no worries for us in Christ. No worries at all. Physically dead or alive. No worries. Look what Paul says next, verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede, precede those who are asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up in the air with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now as we look at this, let me just remind you of the great fact, which is this, that Jesus will return. And this is incredibly exciting news for us to think about. Jesus is coming back, and that's always been the great hope for the people of God. In John 14, 3, Jesus says that He'll come back. And then later on, when Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, two angels came and said to the disciples, this same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, He will come back in the same way that you've seen Him go into heaven. In Revelation 1-7, John writes, Look, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. And this event will indeed be a very fitting return for the King of Kings. Look, Christ's return is our blessed hope and we should all eagerly desire and long for the return of Christ in glory. And while we don't know exactly when He will return, we need to be ready for that return. So I say, be ready. Be looking. Be prepared to see him. And the question is, are you ready? Good question. What great motivation for us in Christ to pursue day by day a life of holiness and to daily pursue a life of growing sanctification during our brief sojourning in this world. And 
Oh, that this would re- this reality would awaken and encourage the unbeliever to now turn to Christ in repentant, saving faith. So I say, Amen, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. So we are eager. We are ready. We are excited. And uh, we need to be um, incredibly ready for the return of Christ in glory. Okay, what does that look like, though? Look, Paul gives five truths regarding the coming of the Lord. Note this, that while this will indeed happen, just as it says it's going to happen, the timing of this is debated. Now, I'm going to go over exactly what this passage says in a second, and it's clear what it says. But again, the timing is debated. Let me just remind you of the issue. The main issue is this. Is the rapture, the catching away of believers, something that's tied in with the second coming of Christ? Or is the rapture of the church the first part of a two-part event? In other words, is the rapture and the second coming of Christ one event? Or does the return of Christ happen in two stages? With the rapture coming first, where Jesus takes Christians up before the tribulation in the book of Revelation... And then the second part with the second coming happening after the tribulation of Revelation. The question is, what is it? I found that those who study a certain belief about this, the premillennial, remember, the amillennial, the postmillennial, and the preterist, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, they all fully believe that the Bible 100% supports their view and they're very confident in their view. They say, how could you not believe this? How could you not agree with me on this issue? I say, hold your view. (laughs) Hold your view strongly, but show grace as you hold it. Because end time doctrine isn't easy in particular. Uh, Apocalyptic literature isn't easy. And grace in this area in particular is good and godly. So we got that out of the way. So as we look at this passage, here's a question. Is the event in verses 15 through 18... The same event that Paul mentions in chapter 5, verse 2, which we're going to look at next week, the day of the Lord. Or is the event in verses 15 through 18 a different event than the day of the Lord? The premillennialists will say that these are two different events, or actually they are one event, the return of Christ, with two phases, right? The rapture and then the second coming later. This is what they say. At the rapture, Jesus comes for his own. At the second coming, Jesus comes with his own. At the rapture, Jesus comes only in the air. At the second coming, Jesus comes all the way down to the earth. At the rapture, living saints receive resurrection bodies. We're going to see that in a second. At the second coming, no living believers receive resurrection bodies. At the rapture, translated saints go to heaven. At the second coming, translated saints go to earth. At the rapture, Jesus comes in the air and returns to heaven. At the second coming, Jesus establishes his kingdom on the earth. At the rapture, there's no judgment on the unsaved upon the earth. The second coming concludes God's judgments on earth dwellers. At the rapture, Christ claims his bride. At the second coming, Christ comes with his bride. The rapture delivers the saints from the wrath to come. The second coming concludes the wrath to come. The rapture is imminent, and its proximity is not announced by any prophetic signs. The second coming is preceded by specific, recognizable signs. 
The rapture involves only the saved of the church age. The second coming involves all the earth, the saved of the Old Testament, and uh, are resurrected after the second coming. The rapture is not mentioned in the Old Testament, but the second coming is predicted often in the Old Testament. Satan's not mentioned in reference to the rapture, but after the second coming, Satan is bound. No prophecy must be fulfilled before the rapture. Many prophecies must be fulfilled before the second coming. At the rapture, only those who meet him in the air will see him. At the second coming, every eye will see him. The rapture is called the day of Christ. The second coming comes as part of the day of the Lord. I hope you understood all that. If not, we're okay. Now, as I've said before, I personally don't like boxes. I don't fit completely into a box, but the scriptures about the imminence of Christ's return at the rapture are very convincing. Imminence meaning that Christ could come for us at any moment. This is certainly what the early church believed. This is certainly what the Thessalonian Christians believed. And the premillennial view of the rapture fits with the imminence of Christ's return very well. That said, let's look at the text. First, look. Those who are alive will precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 15. This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Note the utter confidence that Paul has when he says this. This we say to you by the word of the Lord. So Paul wants it to be very clear to the Thessalonian Christians that what he's saying here isn't just his opinion. No, it's a direct word from God. See, this is divine revelation here, clearly and unquestionably. What? That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So when Jesus returns at this event, at this catching up together, there are two groups of people who are involved. The people who are alive and remain when this event happens, the coming of the Lord, and the people who are dead. Note also this. This is specific to Christians only here, because in the previous verse, Paul talks about those who believe that Jesus died and rose again, talking about saving faith, and then it's specific to those who sleep in Jesus. So this is clearly talking about Christians, those who have previously died in Christ as Christians, and those who were alive as Christians when Christ comes back. Note one other thing. Note how Paul uses the word we. Yes, that means Christians, but it also includes himself when he says this. What does that tell us? It tells us that Paul himself was living in the light of the imminent return of the Lord. That Paul himself expected to be alive at this event. That Paul sincerely lived and labored in the anticipation of this day. So, How much more us today, since we are closer to this day than anyone in the history of the world has ever been. So, look what's going to happen. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, look, we will by no means precede those who are asleep. The word precede means to go before in time and to go prior to. So what's that mean? It means that the living believers won't come into the blessings associated with the return of Christ any sooner than those who have previously died in Christ. In other words, there's absolutely no way the living will get a head start on those believers who have already died. And that's a very comforting thought 
for these Thessalonian Christians who were concerned about their loved ones who had died in Christ. Would they miss out on anything? Are they going to miss it? Answer, no. They're not missing out on a thing. All Christians alive and dead when Jesus comes will be at this event and no Christian will be left out. Second, Jesus will descend with a shout, with a voice, and with a trumpet. Verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. How exciting is that? I'm excited about that. Look, the Lord will descend from heaven. In Acts 1.11, after Jesus ascended into heaven, an angel said to the apostles, Men of Galilee, why do you gaze into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go. Now question, does this mean that heaven is... uh, just up in the sky somewhere, up in the clouds somewhere? Does this mean that if we send an astronaut who could look around up in space for a long enough amount of time, then he just might find Jesus up there somewhere? No, it doesn't mean that. I've, I've heard people actually say that hell is literally in the center of the earth and that heaven is somewhere up there in the sky. No, no, no. Both heaven and hell are found in another realm, a spiritual realm which uh, Christ's resurrected body could adapt to. And while heaven is portrayed as up and hell is portrayed as down, they are real places that aren't part of this earthly realm. Kent Hughes says, Jesus was taken up into heaven. It's not a spatial description. His ascent can't be described in terms of space and distance. The descent and ascent of the Son of God can't be measured in miles or in light years. The created universe can't hold God. Heaven is another sphere where God is wholly experienced and known. And that's right. And so, just as Jesus left here and went there, he will return in the same way, coming down to us. It's interesting to note that Jewish history reveals that a bridegroom would first complete uh, a place for the newlywed couple to live at the father's house prior to the wedding. Upon completion of the home, he would return for the bride take her home, and the marriage ceremony would then begin. In John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus says this, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So think about this, the bridegroom, Jesus, will one day come for his bride, us, the church, and this is what he's doing here in this passage. Again, only Christians, dead and alive, are involved in this event. So the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Man, what's that going to be like? With a shout. Now think about this. When he ascended, he went to the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's now seated there, the right hand signifying the place of power, the right hand signifying the place of authority, the place where he is now exalted to the highest position possible, his rightful place. All right, what's he doing there at the place of power and authority? Well, the Bible says he's advocating for us and he's interceding for us in heaven. First John 2, 2 tells us that if anyone sins, and we will, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. All right, what's an advocate? The word for advocate means one who calls alongside. The picture is similar to that of an attorney who stands at our side when we're accused. This advocate pleads our case before the judge, and every time sin is charged against us, 
Jesus, our advocate, is there to say, you charge that sin to my account. See, he pleads for us on the basis of the sacrifice that he's already made on our behalf. See, Satan's always accusing us. But Jesus, our advocate, is always there saying, paid for, paid for, paid for, paid for, paid for. But Jesus isn't just continually advocating for us. No, he's also making intercession for us, praying for us before the Father. See, he didn't just die for you. No, he's still working for you and for your eternal benefit even right now. Look, in heaven, you, us, we are more regarded and cared for than we could ever think or fathom. And in the heart of the Father and of the Son, there is much that's taking place right now, right now on our behalf. But look, there's coming a day when He will descend and He will come back for us. And that's exactly what happens at this event here in chapter 4. Look, He will descend from heaven with a shout. Hey church! Get ready, because I'm coming. Are you ready? How exciting is that? Shout refers to a shout or command of an order. It implies authority, it implies urgency, and it implies great excitement. Also, shout is a military term. And the picture is this, that the troops are at ease, and that's when the commander comes and shouts, stand up, fall in line, let's go. And this is what Jesus will do for us For the church, one said, the church has been in repose. The bodies of the saints have been in the graves. But there's coming a time when Jesus comes, descends out of heaven, and he shouts for those bodies to stand up. And look, they will fall into rank, they will fall into line, they fall into order from being at ease in repose to filling up the ranks and to taking their stand. There'll also be a voice of an archangel and with a trumpet of God. So look, when the Lord returns, it's not going to be a quiet affair for us. No. He will return with a shout, with a summons for the church to, 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 to come up here. And so, the heavens will declare Christ's coming for His church. It's interesting because the only mention of an archangel is here and in Jude verse 9. In Jude verse 9, The archangel is designated as Michael, and Michael may very well be the only archangel that there is, although there may be more. An archangel means a chief angel. And the voice of an archangel, perhaps Michael's, will be heard at this event, heard by us. Along with that is a trumpet of God. Now, the blowing of trumpets are all over in the Bible, and the trumpet will sound at this event, the coming of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.52 says... The trumpet of God will sound and the dead in Christ will rise, which is what Paul is talking about here in our passage. Now, trumpets were used in Israel for all kinds of things. They were used for festivals, for celebrations, for convocations, for judgments, and for triumphs. They were also used any time they wanted to get a crowd together to give a public announcement or to make any kind of proclamation. So, why the trumpet here? Here's why. To call His people together. To gather us together. Note that this trumpet here is different from the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet found in Revelation chapter 11. Because the subjects are different. Here, the subject is clearly the church. But in Revelation 11, the subject is the wicked world. The results are also different. Here, it's a glorious catching up of the church 
to be with the Lord. But there, it is a further judgment upon the godless world. But the trumpet will indeed sound at this great event, along with a shout from Christ, and along with a voice of an archangel. I mean, what an event. What an event. Note this. The common belief is that because this is an event that is only for the church, that Christians, both dead and alive, that only Christians will experience this event. Which also means that only Christians will see and hear this event. You say, well, that sounds kind of like a stretch. How could they not see and hear this event? Um, um, it, 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 it's, it, you, you said it's not going to be a quiet um, event, right? I mean, what's the deal? Well, there's clearly a, a spiritual element to this because the dead in Christ will see and hear and experience this event. But also, note two instances where God spoke and then note what unbelievers heard. Really interesting. Look, in John twelve twenty eight through 30, Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, the voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now in that case, some heard God's voice, but they thought maybe an angel had spoken and others thought it was just thunder. Could that same kind of thing happen at this catching up of believers? Yeah, sure it could. They may hear a sound, but they may have no idea what it is. In Acts 22, 6 through 9, Paul shares his conversion. He says this, But it happened that I was on my way, approaching Damascus about noontime. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So look, the others saw some kind of light, and they heard some kind of noise, but they didn't understand it, even though Paul heard the words and the instructions of Christ very, very clearly. So it could very well be that unbelievers hear the noise of the trumpet and think that it's some kind of thunder that's happening. Um, how so? Well, because the shout and because the trumpet, and because the call isn't for them. Clearly, it's for the church. And even if they did hear it, I doubt that they will comprehend it. No, no, they'll, they'll try to explain it away. That's what the world does, which could indeed be the case. That said, believers, both dead and alive, will understand this very clearly. Third, the dead in Christ will rise first. How encouraging, especially since these Christians in Thessalonica were so worried about what would happen to those who died before Christ came. Look, they aren't going to miss anything. In fact, they get to go first. The dead in Christ rise first. In Christ. I love that. In Christ. I mean, we must always remember that Christ changes everything. Death is bitter. Yes, it's bitter. But in Christ changes everything. Why? 
Because being in Christ means that you're saved, that you've surrendered to Christ in true, saving, repentant faith, that you are a true child of God, and therefore, that heaven is your true home, that you have true hope, that we don't grieve like those without the hope of the Lord, that we are forgiven, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that absolutely means everything. Hey, the dead in Christ They are really dead. They are really dead. Oh yeah, their physical body is dead for a time, but not the soul. No, see, because you're in Christ, you're always in Christ whether you're dead or whether you're alive. And look, when you die, the physical body goes into the grave, yes, but the soul goes to be with Him. And then look, there will come a day that He will come and reclaim it from decomposed dust, which is what He describes here in chapter 4. One said, You live in Christ, you die in Christ. You're dead in Christ, you stay in Christ. You live again in Christ. I say amen to that. And look, at this event, the dead Christians rise first. That's what it says. It tells us that those believers who have already died and whose spirits are currently in heaven with Jesus, they will be the first to receive their new resurrected bodies. See, on this day described here in chapter 4, this is when our physical bodies will be raised up, and where our soul will be reunited with our transformed physical bodies that are then perfectly fitted for eternal glory. So our new resurrected bodies will be perfectly designed to enjoy eternal life forever. As we noted last week in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44, Paul outlines four contrasts between the resurrection body and our current natural body. Look what he says. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body's sown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. So look, first the resurrection body will be imperishable. In other words, they won't grow old and they won't wear out and they won't get sick and they won't get diseased in any way. I'm looking forward to that. Second, the natural body is characterized by dishonor. The resurrection body is marked by glory. See, throughout eternity, Christians' immortal bodies will be pure and honorable and perfectly suited to please, praise, and fully enjoy the Creator who made them and the Redeemer who restored them. Third, the natural body is sown in weakness, but the glorified, resurrected body is raised in power. It'll therefore be a strength that's sufficient to do all that we desire to do in conformity with the will of God. Finally, Paul contrasts the natural body to the spiritual body. Here, Paul tells us that our new resurrected bodies will be entirely submitted to and in perfect harmony with the Holy Spirit. That means that we will have a physical body that will be able to carry out holy impulses without a moment's distraction or weariness. And therefore, they will be able to fully enjoy the bounties of the new creation that God has created for His people. So just as Christ raised up, look, God will raise us up in Christ also from the dead with a physical, bodily resurrection. And good news, there'll be a reunion for those of us in Christ. Think about that. That beloved wife, that beloved husband, that beloved son or daughter who died in Christ and who is now gone, hey, they won't miss this event. They will not miss this event. In fact, they'll rise first 
And there'll be a reunion. As one said, what rises up out of the grave is a glorified body to meet an already glorified spirit to become that eternal person in the image of Christ. And so the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, side note, this will be nothing for the Lord to accomplish, okay? People say, well, what if the body was grounded into dust? Or what if they were cremated? Is this going to be a problem for God in the resurrection? Answer, uh, no. <laughs> Certainly not. The fact that a body's been ground to dust or cremated doesn't make it any more difficult for God to resurrect that body, not in any way. I mean, the bodies of Christians who died thousands of years ago have by now completely turned into dust, but that will in no way prevent God from being able to resurrect their bodies. I mean, He created them in the first place. He he will have no problem recreating them. So no worries. This won't be a problem for God. Fourth, those who are alive will be caught up in the clouds, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up in, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Who are those who are alive and remain? Those are the Christians who are still alive when this great event happens, the coming of the Lord. Look what will happen. We will be caught up together, raptured, snatched up, plucked with them in the clouds, and it's that moment that this transformation takes place. Boom. We who are alive and remain will all of a sudden be snatched up in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And that's when we too, those who are alive, I hope I'm one of them, will be transformed into a glorified body like the resurrected body of Christ. As Philippians 3.21 says, when He comes, He will transform the body of our humble state where we're at right now, into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of His power. So we will be caught up, snatched up, snatched away, snatched out of the grave, snatched out of the world. The word for caught up is the Greek word harpazo, which means to seize, to carry off, to claim for oneself, and to snatch out of or to snatch away from. This is the rapture. And while the word rapture doesn't actually appear in the Bible, this is the event that the word rapture is describing. See, the term rapture comes from a form of the word that's used in Jerome's Latin translation of this passage. And the word rapture in Latin means to seize, to carry off, to snatch up. So it's talking about the same thing. You could call it the rapture, the coming of the Lord, or the catching away of believers talking about the same thing. We will be caught up together with them. With who? With Christ and with every other believer. So as one said, the church triumphant joins the church militant to become the church glorified. So think about this. We will literally fly away. It's what it says. We will fly away. Christ will come down. The spirits of the dead in Christ also will come down and they will meet their bodies. And in that moment, they will obtain their resurrection bodies. And we, prayerfully, will be there. Not having died first. We'll see this event in real time here. We will be snatched up to meet the Lord in the air where we will receive our resurrection bodies that are perfectly fitted for eternity with God. And we will meet the Lord in the air. What an event. So one day, maybe very soon, that's that's the prayer, right? We will rocket through the air 
And good news, every Christian who's ever lived will be a part of this amazing event. Is anybody excited about this? Because you should be. The Lord will be coming from one direction up. We will be coming from another down. And we will meet together in the air. That's, that's what it clearly tells us. How incredible is that? Boom, just like that. Will it be scary being up there in the air? It'll definitely be exciting. So we will meet the Lord in the air. Some say that we will go up to meet him and then we will immediately come right back down where we will, where he will then establish his kingdom. Others say that we will go up to meet him and then we will continue on up as he snatches us away before he pours out his wrath onto the earth with a tribulation described in the book of Revelation. The common belief is this, that King Jesus is coming, but he's not coming to a welcoming earth. No, no, he's coming to an earth not ready to receive him at all. Instead, he's coming to a hostile earth under the control of Satan, a a rival ruler. And he's coming to snatch his people out. He's coming to rescue his people and to take them to a safe place in his father's house. And then he'll come back later all the way down And then he will take the earth by force and establish his kingdom. In the end, we will indeed meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And that's fifth. Hey, the family reunions at that time are going to be great. But best of all, we will always be with the Lord. Note this. Always means always. That's right. We will always be in his presence. Now think about that. Always. Always. Look, he died to make us his. He's the one that we love the most. He's our all in all. He's all that really matters in life. And nothing matters apart from him. Nothing else compares to him. Nothing else saves but him. Nothing else lasts but him. And what we do for him, it's all about him. And the thought that we will always be with him is, as one said, the acme of eternal bliss. And that's absolutely right. One said... Heaven itself would not satisfy without Christ. Christ is the diamond in the ring of glory. A glimpse of Christ through the lattice is sweet, but the soul will never stop longing until it sees him face to face. It desires to be wholly plunged into the sweetness of God. And, and, and shouldn't that be the case with every child of God today? Shouldn't that be how we all feel about our Christ Our deepest longing is to be with him. And the thought that we will soon be with him forever should excite us beyond degree. And it is indeed coming. Octavius Winslow wrote, We can't keep our eye too exclusively or too intently fixed on Jesus. Christ must be all. Christ the beginning, Christ the center, and Christ the end. And he's right. And again, soon we will always be with him, the one that we love the most. Jonathan Edwards rightly said, All earthly delights are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. All earthly delights are but streams, but God is the ocean. And soon we will dive in to that ocean, never ever to be departed from Him. Look, He's the source of everything that's good. He's the source of all true delight in life. He gives true joy and peace and hope and satisfaction. And soon we will always be with Him. What can compare to that? Mark my words. You don't want to miss this. 
right? You don't want to miss this. Some here today will indeed be indifferent about this. They are fools. They're playing with hellfire. This is nothing to be indifferent about. Please stop playing with fire. No, surrender to Christ in repentant faith and be saved from the wrath to come so that the hope of Christ becomes your hope. Look, the opposite of being with the Lord forever is being separated from the Lord forever in hell. And no one would certainly want that. No. And here you are right now hearing these words and this is a great opportunity to move from darkness to light, from Satan to Jesus, from hell to heaven. Look, we're all sinners and sin has wages, death and hell. Every sin committed against the infinite holy God is worthy of infinite and eternal wages. But Jesus came to rescue undeserving sinners like us. Praise Him. So, Jesus, God the Son, left heaven and He came here. He took on human flesh and He became a man. He lived a perfect life and then He died on the cross and then three days later, He rose up from the dead. Alright, what's the big deal about that? This, that on the cross, Jesus, the only one who was worthy, the only one who was able, He took the sin of every person in all of history who would ever believe and He paid those wages of hell and death in the place of the believer. Why? So that the believer could then be saved cleansed, forgiven, and rescued from the wrath to come by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. See, He faced our wrath so that we who believe could go to heaven instead of hell. He became the believer's substitute for sin. He died so that everyone who believes could live and go to heaven instead of hell. He did all that for us. So, here's the question. Won't you believe on Christ today and be saved? Won't you just surrender to Christ today as Lord and Savior and be rescued from the wrath to come so that you can be forever with the Lord in glory instead of eternally separated from Him in hell? Good news. We who believe will always be with the Lord. Always. Now you can, you can debate some of this. Well, I, you can debate the timing of this. You can debate how it might seem that everyone might see and hear this event instead of only Christians seeing and hearing this event. But I have no idea how you can deny the events of these verses as happening exactly as we just looked at them. I mean, we have earnestly sought to correctly and accurately interpret 1 Thessalonians thus far as best we possibly could in context and everything else as best we possibly could. And we don't change the way we do that when we come to this passage. Clearly this event will happen exactly the way that it says it will happen. How can we will meet the Lord in the air not mean we will meet the Lord in the air? Also, this is clearly something that only happens to Christians. Clearly. God snatches us up and away and we will always be with the Lord. Well, look how Paul ends in verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That makes sense. This should give great comfort to all of us in Christ. Jesus is coming for His own. Don't worry about the ones that die and don't worry about the ones that are alive. No need to grieve. No need to sorrow. It's all good for us in Christ. 
The word comfort places the emphasis on the consoling impact that it imparts to those who are sorrowing the loss of loved ones. This tells us that there is solid ground for encouragement and for confident hope in the face of the fact that loved ones have passed away ahead of us. Remember, Christians, we looked at this last week, Christians never say a final goodbye. This life is not all that there is for the child of God. Hope does not end with the grave. Our Lord is coming again, and it might be much sooner than any of us think. And the question is, are you ready? Have you made preparations to go? Remember, we don't grieve like the rest of those who have no hope when our loved ones die in the Lord. Once said goodbyes are the laws of earth. Reunions are the laws of heaven. Oh, what happy greetings we will experience on that day. Oh, what tales there will be to tell of the years that rolled between. Think about that. I can only hear some of our loved ones in Christ who have gone on before us. You have no idea when we see them. Saying, I can't wait to show you around. You have no idea. I've been waiting for you. It's so good to see you. But best of all, we will see Jesus and we will be with Him forever. Eternally satisfied in His presence. Oh, what a day. I can't wait to hear His voice. I can't wait to see His face. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us to be eager and excited about this awesome event described here. Help us to be ready. Help us to be prepared. Help us to be filled with love for You. Filled with hope. Filled with faith. Increase our faith. Strengthen our faith now. And if there's those here who came who aren't saved, Lord, I pray that they would be saved. That You would open up their mind and open up their heart and that they would give up, surrender to You in true saving faith and be saved right here, right now. We know You can do it. Lord, open their eyes. May we be eager. May we be excited. May we be ready. We love you. Encourage us now in Jesus' name. Amen.